The following is a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you find this teaching encouraging and instructive. Perhaps you are currently a follower of Christ or are perplexed, skeptical, or even antagonistic to Christianity. Regardless, we would love to hear from you. Please contact us at info at citylifetc.org. Thank you for listening, and please contact us if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you. today comes from Psalm chapter 2 verses 7 through 12 and chapter 16 verses 7 through 10. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And we now turn to the New Testament reading which is uh, actually a reading that falls right into our sermon series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 41. It's a very long passage, so I will begin actually with verse 26 and read to the end. This is now uh, the Apostle Paul. He's in the synagogue in a city called Antioch, not the Antioch we looked at last or two weeks ago, but this is Antioch in Pisidia, and he has been invited to stand up and say something from the Old Testament, and this is what he says. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, 
he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade. I honestly <clears throat> cannot tell you what Netflix series it was, what the title of it was. It was just the other year that Susan and I uh, saw this Netflix series about a widow of a fallen soldier in Afghanistan. He had been killed three years earlier. One evening the widow was <clears throat> watching the news. They were showing a protest that had happened in Colombia and suddenly she sees in the group of demonstrators her husband. Or at least he looked like her husband. There was immediate shock that she felt. Her whole world suddenly stopped. The things that she had believed to be reality for three years might not be reality after all. So she got in touch with the network for a copy of that clip. And when she got it, she played it. And sure enough, it was her husband. The shirt he was wearing was one she had given to him a few Christmases back. The necklace around his neck was one that he customarily wore at home. And she knew reality was suddenly different than she had thought it to be for three years. He was not dead he was alive. And so many questions rushed into her mind, and the search for her husband began. I imagine that's exactly the kind of shock that the people in the synagogue felt when they were listening to the Apostle Paul speaking the text that we just read. Now, we're in Antioch, in Pisidia. It is now 46 AD, 
And Paul, as you will notice in verse 16, if you look into the text, is addressing what he calls Jews and God-fearers, which was another word to describe Gentiles that had converted to the Jewish faith. And he begins verse 17, if you can look there through 22, to work these Jewish people and God-fearers through a bit of their history. When he gets to verse 23, he raises the temperature in the room. And he says, verse 23, of this man's offspring, namely David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. If you're sitting in the synagogue and listening to Paul at this point, you're thinking, Jesus? How does he come up with Jesus? He was crucified 16 years ago. He's dead. And then Paul continues, verse 24, he says, before his coming, and now he starts talking about what we actually read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about a particular man by the name of John. He was the cousin of Jesus, a forerunner of Jesus, and he baptized people in order to prepare them for the Messiah. Now you'll notice that Paul says to the people that John, verse 25, said to the people, I am not he. And he constantly pointed to him who once did say, I am he. Namely, I am the Messiah. He made some other claims that many people consider to be absolutely preposterous. He was known for not only having said, I am he, namely the Messiah, but he, on one occasion, John 10, verse 30, even said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews considered that to be such a blasphemous statement that they wanted to stone him. Maybe even worse, at least for us today, at least considering another preposterous statement he made, is the verse in John 14, verse 6, another one of those I am statements of Jesus, where he said, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And because of those kinds of statements, people thought this, this man needs to be put to death, and so they put him to death. Verse 29, Paul reminds them that he was crucified on a tree. And if you're a Jew in the synagogue, in that moment you might be thinking, well, good, because he deserved it for making those kinds of statements. And then suddenly, verse 30, the shock moment. But God raised him from the dead. That is a claim of cataclysmic proportions. 
And it struck the hearts of the people in the synagogue so much that many of them wanted to hear this again. They asked Paul to come back. Eventually, others opposed him very strongly. It's the kind of claim that gets one or the other of reactions from people, and it might even get either reaction this morning from us. But God raised him from the dead. What we need to do now is to delve into Paul's sermon and see what he says. And the first thing that we're going to see that he says is look to the evidence for God raising Jesus from the dead. Paul now begins after this statement in verse 30 to outline some things that have happened that, in fact, underscore that he must have really risen from the dead. First of all, look to the many witnesses. He says in verse 31, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. There were many witnesses, actually, of the resurrected Jesus. I'll just give a few later on today. We'll have some opportunities to discuss with each other uh, some of the other evidences that are given for his resurrection. But one evidence is Peter and John and Mary, they ran to the tomb having heard that the rock was rolled away. And when they look inside the tomb, even go into the tomb, they witness that his body is gone. They witness that his grave cloths that had been bound around him were now neatly stacked in the corner, all folded up nicely. And immediately they would have known that this is not the doing of grave robbers because they would have never taken the time to unravel all of these cloths from the mummy and then fold them up so nicely. They would have grabbed the mummy and run off as quickly as possible with it. And then there were the ten of the twelve disciples who were gathered in a room and they were disillusioned and discouraged. They had given up hope. They were sure he was dead for good when suddenly he came through the wall in his resurrection body and they became witnesses of that. And also that though a resurrection body, he was able to talk to them words that they could understand. He sat down and he ate with them. And then there was a third moment, one of those that was not present with the ten was Thomas. And Thomas the skeptic said, I won't ever believe that he rose from the dead unless he appears in front of me and shows me his scars. And so what does Jesus do? He appeared in front of him and he showed him his scars. And when Thomas saw the scars and saw Jesus, he made an absolutely shocking statement. He bowed down before Jesus, and he said what no Jew dare ever say to a human being. He said, my Lord and my God. 
Paul the Apostle, who was preaching the sermon in 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, says there were over 500 people who have been witnesses of his resurrected self. They were sometimes individuals, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in larger groups. They were in various different places. It's not that everybody had a hallucination. It's that they all witnessed one and the same resurrected Jesus. And Paul, in this sermon, you'll notice the wording in verse 31, is even saying, now his witnesses to the people. In other words, now, 16 years later, these witnesses are still alive. And they are still testifying that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And that means we can corroborate what we're saying. You can find these people and you can compare notes. And that's why it has come down in history as one of the most testified and scientifically proven events in history. That Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. Not only do we have these many witnesses, but Paul goes on in his sermon to say that there's also internal evidence. Internal evidence would be evidence from within the scriptures themselves. Having given them the external evidence, he now starts pointing to some of the Old Testament passages that predicted a resurrection. You'll see that in verses 32 and 33, where he says, And we bring you the good news. Actually, the word that is used there is, We, um, we, we gospel you. That's the word. We good news you. We good news you that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And the first text that he points to is this one that you have um, here in, in um, verse 33, Psalm 2, verse 7, where God the Father says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this is a difficult text to be sure. Psalm 2 takes us into the heavenlies. What's happening there is the Father anoints the Son with the Holy Spirit. So you have actually in the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, already an indication of the Trinity. And the Father is speaking to the second person of the Trinity and calls him my son. Now contrary to the way Islam understands the word son, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, the word son is a title, a royal title for divinity. That's why Jesus called himself the son of man and the son of God. Because son is a title of divinity. So the divine father is referring to the son as being equally divine. And he says to 
this son that he has begotten him. Notice the word begotten. Not made, not created, but begotten. And begotten means that the father eternally generated the son, if you will. So what is happening here in Psalm 2, verse 7, is that the Father is bestowing the power of the Holy Spirit upon the Son in order to send Him into the world as the Savior of the world. And that's why in the New Testament we have what is probably the most popular verse in the Bible today, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. And Paul's point is that, ladies and gentlemen, was fulfilled in Jesus. It was fulfilled in his coming as our Savior and the resurrection of Jesus Proves it once and for all. This is the God-sent Savior of every human being, man and woman. And then Paul goes on in verse 35. He points to Psalm 16, verse 10. Now this is a psalm that was written by David, the king. And it does appear when you read the psalm, that David is writing about himself. And then Paul's point is, well, it could not have possibly referred to David himself. David died. He saw corruption. His tomb is right here in, in, in our midst. So it must be referring to somebody else. And it's why the rabbis actually and eventually made Psalm 16 a messianic psalm. They knew it referred to the Messiah. And Paul's point here is it was, in fact, fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is one that, yes, they crucified him. Yes, they buried him. But he saw no corruption. Because, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. There are many other passages in the Old Testament that we could look to to underscore the internal evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament texts. We can look to further external evidences that point to the historicity and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. All of that to underscore, Paul knew what he was talking about, and he was speaking truth like a news flash when you thought he was dead. But God raised him from the dead. The other day, took my Volvo into Lloyd's to get something fixed. As I walked in, 
I heard one of the other guys at the front desk say to a different customer, so you're ready for Easter? I thought about that. Actually, the whole way home I thought about that. How do you get ready for Easter? What was that man supposed to say? Does that mean get your cooking all done? It was Tuesday. I was hoping he hadn't gotten his cooking all done. Does it, does it mean that he's, he's put all the eggs out under the bushes so the grandchildren can go look for them? I don't know. How do you prepare for Easter? And I thought about that. Maybe you're thinking about that. And the conclusion that I came up, to, up with is, well, if, if he had asked me, are you ready for Easter? I think I would have said, you know what? I am. Because I've thought through the evidences for Easter. And I've also thought through the implications of those evidences. So yes, I'm ready for Easter. Unfortunately, he didn't ask me. And even if he had, it took me a whole long ride home to figure out what I would have said. But the fact of the matter is, getting ready for Easter means you've got to first of all look at the evidences. And then the second thing that you need to do is you've got to look at the implications of the evidences. Look at the results of God raising Jesus from the dead. Now, what are the results? Paul spells them out for us here. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the first result and implication. You can have all your sins forgiven now. The crucifixion and the resurrection will solve the issue of your sins once and for all. The reason I say that is because the resurrection verifies that what happened at the cross really happened, and it is the reality. So let me come at it this way. <clears throat> you know, the popular religious approach, and I say that way because many of the religions buy into this, including many people who call themselves Christians. The popular religious approach is to try to solve your sins through a lifelong doing of good works in the hopes that your good works are more than your bad works so that when you appear before God in the end, he will see the scales, he will see that your good works outweigh your bad works, and he will accept you into his heaven and for all eternity. Now, if you're thinking that way, let me suggest to you that this is impossible. And let me suggest to you that Christianity is not about being good. It's about being perfect. Now, as soon as I say that, you're going to say to me, well, yeah, but nobody's perfect. And I say, that's exactly the problem. See, we're dealing 
with a perfect God. We're dealing with a God who is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. And if there's one thing that God cannot accept, it's sin. Because he's perfectly holy. So if you're trying to receive the approval of God by doing good works, remember who you are. You may be a person who does good, but all your good works come from a sinful heart. So it's kind of like the water that comes out the spigot, if it's a corroded pipe underneath, is going to be dirty water. So all of your good works that you do are actually sinful good works. And that means while you're doing good works in hopes of getting closer and closer to God, because they are sinful good works, your good works are actually more sin that's causing you to go farther away from God instead of closer to Him. You see, this is the problem that Luther had when he was trying so very hard to, to do good works, even to punish himself for bad works and bad thoughts in hopes that through the good works he could get closer to God and his acceptance. But when he realized that all of his good works are sinful good works and that they actually caused more of a gulf between him and God, he made this great statement. He said, the more I tried, the worse it got. And you stand there with all of your good works, hopeless and helpless, because there's nothing you can do. And that's precisely the solution. It's that Christ came to do it all for you. See, his perfect life and his perfect death is the perfect payment to a perf perfect God for all of your imperfections. His is the work as your substitute. As your substitute. And that's why Paul's statements here refer to, to um, him gospeling, if you will, proclaiming the good news. The resurrection verifies the crucifixion. What Jesus went to the cross to accomplish has been accomplished. The resurrection says it once and for all. And because it's accomplished, it means that what he came to do in order to forgive you of your sins, it can happen now. All you need is to embrace Christ and his work for you. Stop trying to do good works for the sake of gaining God's approval. Christ gained it for you Embrace Christ. What a wonderful implication that you can go through the rest of your life knowing that all sins past, present, and future have been dealt with already by Jesus. The second implication and result is what he says in verse 39. Everyone who believes... Listen, you can believe. You can believe that the resurrection really happened. And because you can believe that, 
you can believe that Jesus claims, all those preposterous claims that he made for himself are really true. Reminds me of a discovery group that I led in Frankfurt, Germany some years ago. And in fact, on this particular evening, we were looking at the absolutist claims, if you will, of Jesus, like the one in John 14, 6 that I referred to earlier, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I asked all the people in the group, so how do you feel when you hear Jesus making this kind of claim that he is the only way to God and a relationship with God? Well, the first few people all said what I expected them to say, which is, it's outlandish, it's emotionally abusive, it's wrong, it's arrogant, and a few other words. When suddenly, a young woman by the name of Manuela piped up. She hadn't said anything all evening long, and now she came to word for the first time. And I'll never forget what this young woman said. She said, I kind of like it. And everybody looked at her and said, Manuela, how can you say that? And she said, well, let's, let's think of it this way, or I, I think of it this way. She said, let's say that there are a thousand options for salvation out there. And I happen to choose Jesus. So now I come to Jesus and I say to him, Jesus, out of all the thousands of options out there, I'm picking you. I know they're all true, or they could all be true for me, but I'm picking you as true for me. Now what would he say if there are thousands of options? He would probably say, Manuela, that's very nice of you, thank you. You know, I think that's kind that out of all the options, you would pick me. Now, I need to tell you something. You know, since there are other options, you need to know some of the other options are easier than me. You know, I, I talk about a narrow road. I talk about pick, taking up your cross to follow me. I talk about these things. There's a cost, right, if you want to follow me. And, and, and I'm happy that you choose me. But just so you know, there are other options. You know, and I would go, says Manuela, through the rest of my life wondering, did I pick the best possible option? And I'd always be uncertain about my spirituality. But let's say Jesus did rise from the dead and he, he really is the only way to the Father. And I come to him and I say, okay, Jesus, I choose you. What would he say? He would say, that is great. I am so happy that you chose me because there is no other way to God, but I guarantee you a relationship with God because I came to do everything that you cannot do for yourself. I did the good work that you cannot do, and I did the perfect payment for you that you cannot pay, and I brought it all before a perfect God in your place. And so, Manuela, great, I accept you because I'm the only one who can accept someone unto salvation. Not only that, Manuela, you did not only choose me, but before you did that, I chose you. 
I chose you a whole eternity ago. I set my eyes upon you, and I said, now there's a girl that I want to make my own. That's a girl for whom I'm coming to die on the cross and rise again. And so, Manuela, what I want to tell you is, welcome home, because this is what I've been looking forward to all eternity, just to have you here as my follower. Welcome home. And she said, I would go through the rest of my life feeling like, wow, I got the best deal. I picked the best thing. Frankly, the people in the group didn't know what to do with Manuela's spontaneous outburst. But I thought, now there's somebody who's thinking well. Because she realized that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just do that as a historic fact or event. He did that so that you and I can believe in him, can grab hold of him, only to find out that he grabbed hold of you. And that can be your experience today. If you believe the resurrection, that you grab hold of the resurrected one as the best choice, the only real choice, because he's the only one who ever really dealt with your helplessness and hopelessness through his death and resurrection. A third implication is that you can rest yourself into the hands of the sovereign God who directs your living and your dying. Paul says in verse 30, God raised him from the dead. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I kind of skimmed over, if you even want to say skimmed, I just kind of referred to verses 17 through 22, where Paul takes these Jews through their history. Let me, let me just quickly make a point about what Paul says. You can go home and you can read through these verses again and, and see it for yourself. But the interesting thing is that when Paul takes them through their own history, he has God as the subject of all the verbs. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, starting with verse 17, he says, God chose the forefathers. He led them out. Verse 19, he destroyed seven nations in Canaan. He gave them the land. Verse 20, he gave them Judges. Verse 21, he gave them their first king. Verse 22, he raised up David to be their king. Verse 23, God brought to Israel a savior. You see how God is doing it all. He is making their history his story. And then you come to verse 29 where it says, they took him and crucified him. And you come to verse 30, but God, there it is again, proactive. God raised him from the dead. And this is the great news to you on Easter 2022. is the God who sovereignly directed every step of Israel's history to make it his story also can direct every step and moment of your history and makes it his story. Because Jesus rose from the dead. There is no one better 
or safer into whose hands you can lay your life, you can lay your sickness, you can lay your questions, you can lay your fears of tomorrow and your anxieties, you can lay it all into the sovereign, resurrected Jesus' hands because your story, he's made to his story. And he will sovereignly direct your life because God raised him from the dead. And finally, as an implication, you can be certain of eternal life upon death. He who upon death saw no corruption will raise you up to eternity of no corruption. Some of us know who Billy Graham is. I shook his hand when I was seven years old, and I'll never forget that moment. You know, Billy Graham, who just died a few years ago at the age of 99, many, many people referred to Billy Graham as the Apostle Paul of our day. Because millions and millions of people heard this good news of a resurrected Jesus through Billy Graham. You know, shortly before Billy Graham died, he wrote these words. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Now, if you believe in the resurrected Jesus, you can say the same thing with absolute confidence today that when you take your final breath, it's not the end of you. You're just changing your address. And you're going into the presence of the resurrected one who promised that just as God raised him from the dead, he will raise you as well. So listen up. Just like a woman in Netflix, and just like people in the synagogue, today you've heard and seen the news flash. Oh, no, 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 he's not dead. You may have thought for many years that he is, or that he's totally irrelevant, but he's not dead. He's alive. God raised him from the dead. So, if you have never believed in the resurrection, here's what I ask you to do. Grab hold of it today in faith. And once you grab hold of the resurrection as a historic fact and event, then work your way back to all the questions that you've been asking. Go to God today in prayer and say, God, I want to believe the resurrection of Jesus. And because I believe that he really rose from the dead, God, will you now also answer all the other questions I have? What about church and all the abuses that have been happening in, in, with churches and, 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 and all those fake people, who, those hypocrites? And God, what, what about, do you even exist? And, and are you personal? And can I know you? And, and, and God, what about all these other religions? And is there any truth in any of them? You see, the thing is, once you've grabbed hold of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, then what you do is you take him and you listen to what he says about all the questions you're asking. Because God raised him from the dead, he must be who he claimed to be. And you can listen to him. And if you're like me, a Christian who has his moments of doubt or it gets to several points where you feel disillusioned, or discouraged, and you wonder, God, is this all really true, what I believe? 
Is it all really real? Remember these words, but God raised him from the dead. There's your certainty. There's your certainty of forgiveness and your certainty of your faith. Even if you can't answer all the questions in life or even if you don't understand why God's doing this or doing that, you do know this. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know that God raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your resurrection. We celebrate it as the anchor of our ship. We celebrate it as the cornerstone of our lives. We celebrate it as the rock on which we stand. And we praise you and ask that you would give to all of us here who have doubts or unbelief, we pray that you would give us uh, conviction, persuasion, and faith to know that what Paul preached, but God raised him from the dead, is the sentence that comes into every question we ask and into every moment of discouragement we feel as the statement, the historic fact that raises us up again. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a ministry of City Life Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We hope you were encouraged by this teaching. Thank you for listening, and please contact us at info at citylifetc.org if we can be of service to you. Peace be with you.